This is Keys to the City with Anthony Weiner. Welcome to Episode 5 of Keys to the City, a podcast about the problems facing New York City and the enduring power of ideas. I'm Anthony Weiner. From existential threats to pet peeves, each week together we'll resist the temptation to curse the darkness. Instead, we'll try to light a candle by bringing to light some things that have worked before or new ways to get things done. And we've run the gambit so far in the first few episodes, and the feedback has been Really remarkable. People have many ideas. You know, people come up to me all the time and say there ought to be a law. Apparently, they've been holding on to some of these ideas for quite some time, waiting for someone to talk more about them. And in many ways, campaigns and elections are about people circulating ideas of what they would do if they get elected. But all too often, that doesn't turn out to be the case. And hopefully, we're filling some of that void with this podcast. And I've described how this podcast came to be a couple of times. It's based on these idea books that I put out called Keys to the City. They were ideas that I had come across in my time in public life. I was in the New York City Council. Before that, I worked for Senator Chuck Schumer. Then he was a member of the United States House of Representatives. I took his seat in the House of Representatives after I left the City Council, and then I ran for mayor 2005 and again in 2000. 13 came pretty close in 2005, made the runoff and decided not to contest the runoff. The time Fernando Ferrer was running against Mike Bloomberg because I thought I'd have another opportunity. And then I did. After my scandal in 2013, I came back and tried again. And well, that did not work out so well. I still had not really dealt with my problems the way, honestly, I should have. And but the idea books were still out there. Keys to the city. You can find them in PDF form in the show notes actually in the show notes. And then there's also a possibility, if you'd like to, for you to participate by contributing your own ideas at keys to the city at wabcradio.com. But today we have an issue that, you know, you almost need a Swiss army knife of keys to be able to figure this out because it's not something that has an easy answer, but all too often is something that Editorial writers, people on bar stools, and just even academics sometimes reduce to one or two glib ideas. It's the idea of how we deal with people who are living on our streets who are dealing with active addiction. I say active addiction because I make a distinction between those people and people who are trying to get help, people who are in programs like I am or people who are turning to places to try to get help with their addiction, but people who are basically living as addicts on our streets. And some people have said, well, just round them up, throw them in prison. Some people have said, oh, just get them drug treatment of some sort. Other people have said, if only they had housing. But the fact is that when you dive deep into this, as we will today, you realize that Frankly, so many different corners of government wind up being impacted, and so many of our neighbors are dealing with these challenges. And this might be one of those places that you have to say there is a limitation to how much government can really do. And after we come back from a break, um, we're going to talk for someone who got a look at this in a really in-depth way, a journalist who found one particular addict 
who followed him on his journey, saw how he supports his habit by committing crimes, and also pointed out how difficult it is to crack this nut. And I'll tell you a little bit about why this is so complicated. Well, for one thing, people who live on the streets, you know, to some degree, are impervious from how difficult the life on the streets is. They're choosing to be there for whatever reason. In the case of many drug addicts, these drug addicts, frankly, are people like that you can find in any of our families. I've described to you before that I have addiction in my family. I lost a brother to addiction. I have struggled with addiction. The notion that there's any one particular type of addict on the street that comes from any particular socioeconomic place is just not right. We're going to hear of a story about one who, frankly, was a New York City firefighter. But if you think about it, even if these people cross their paths with some city service, for example, they commit a crime to support their habit, they go into a drugstore and they rob a drugstore, then the police get involved or the courts get involved. If they are on the street and they are in a semi-catatonic state that we've all experienced before walking by people on the street, then the EMTs or firefighters have to get called. If we're trying to figure out where to bring them, if we are going to take them and and they agree to leave the streets and try to seek refuge somewhere, where do we bring them? You know, these are just the tips of the icebergs because once you start to answer any of these questions, you realize how difficult this all is. And what if someone wants to continue in this life, not because they choose to be addicts, but because they basically they are in the thralls of the drug of choice? What if they don't want to leave the streets? What if they decide, I'm going to figure out ways to commit crimes that keep me just under the threshold that would get me thrown into prison, that instead I would just wind up getting a dex appearance ticket or turned out to do the next crime? Even the most hardened tough-on-crime person wouldn't say someone who steals $50 worth of things should be in a jail cell. But maybe they should if they've gotten that crime five or six or eight times. But even then, they're not going to hold them for long. And what do we do with the EMTs who have to go to these calls? 911 gets called, they show up. But they can't force someone to go get health care either. Then we have the expense associated with that. And of course, the big question is, where do we take these people? these people who have drug habits, these people who have problems, what kind of housing do we offer for them? And is it affordable to be able to do it? And frankly, why should these people jump ahead of the line over someone who has had a fire or someone who's a victim of domestic violence? It's a long way of saying that these issues are very, very complicated. And they begin with, hopefully, having people who are dealing with addiction seeking help. But what if they don't? That's the question that we're going to ask our next guest. He he tells an interesting story of how he took his opportunity as a journalist to not scrape along the top of this story, but to dive deep into it. When we come back, we'll hear about him. Thank you for joining us on Keys to the City. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Keys to the City, where we try to unpack some of the problems facing our city and think about the solutions, sometimes large, sometimes small, that go into solving them. And today we are dealing with a particularly vexing problem that has many tentacles, and it is the challenge of how we deal with the public policy decisions we have to make around what is essentially a private health problem, and that is the problem of drug addiction. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by Stephen Yang. Stephen is a freelance um, photographer, freelance writer, 
who did an amazing story for the New York Post recently that touched upon this. Uh, it came out in June 22nd. You might have heard us discuss, uh, have an interview with him and Curtis also commenting on this on our radio programs earlier this month. I want to welcome Stephen Yank. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the foundation here. You followed a gentleman named uh, David Gonzalez, who took you on basically a tour of his daily existence um, as someone who has fallen really hard and is now addicted to drugs, largely living on the streets. But tell us a little bit about David and how you met him. So I am largely a day-to-day -day assignment photographer, freelance photographer. So I deal with anything from politics to feature stories to occasionally sports. And in my day-to-day -day work, I came across a pretty large group of drug addicts that hang out in Midtown and Washington Square Park. And my initial assignment was more just to document the overall feeling of those areas. But after a number of days of just photographing people doing drugs and kind of passed out. I wanted to dig a little deeper and try to get to know some of them. And obviously some of them were not willing to participate in any form of documentation. Some of them wanted to be paid, which I can't do. And one day I got really lucky and I saw David and I approached him and he just immediately agreed. He did not seem like, you know, very high or in an altered state. He spoke very calmly and uh, lucidly and gave me permission to follow him around for the day. And I didn't really know what to expect, but as I started asking him questions, he revealed what he does on a day-to-day -day basis, which is he would do some heroin, which I was welcome to document. And then he would go and start stealing from different stores in order to support this habit of his. And before you get into those descriptions, which are riveting in the story, so are the photographs. You know, I don't know if there is a quintessential or a presumed type of person that is on the street. But tell us a little bit about David Gonzalez's backstory. So David was an EMT and FDNY firefighter. He grew up in Staten Island, went to Catholic school, came from what I consider to be a loving and stable family. His mother is very much involved in his life. They speak weekly, if not every couple days on the phone. And he... I think, you know, he revealed to me from a young age, he was interested in drugs. You know, he was experimenting at a fairly young age, but pretty common amongst addicts and, you know, even the general populace, I think teenage years was doing some drugs. He was basically drug tested at the FDNY after 9-11 and tested positive for cocaine. And at that point was given a choice, you know, in order to continue, he would have to get clean or he could retire on like a medical disability leave. And he believed at the time that he could get clean. And he went, he went through I, what he says are a few different rounds of treatment centers, some of which were provided by the FDNY. And I'm not 100% sure about this, but his mom mentioned that he's actually still able to get treatment from the FDNY, even though it's been almost 20 years since he worked for them. So now to, to catch us up, he took you on an experience during his day. How does he support his habit? So he generally goes to different department stores, large stores that have you know little security, and he will try to steal electronic items anywhere from you know Bluetooth speaker to headphones, hard drives, and then he takes these items 
in fences them at uh, Midtown Electronic Stores for an agreed upon 25% of the sticker price. And I think generally speaking, he wants to get around $500 a day. He mentioned that he can, you know, he spends about $100 to $200 a day on heroin, and then he likes to pocket some of the rest, some of its extra drugs in order to sell to other addicts. And some of it is just to have a little bit of savings so he can travel, buy food, you know, things like that. So we've seen a lot of evidence and there's been a lot of discussion in our civic dialogue recently about the rise of crime. And I know I've experienced this just going into stores and seeing how basically shoplifting seems to be a bigger problem than it was in recent years. I've seen a lot of shelves at drugstores that are secure now because and I've seen a lot of more security. Tell us, is he afraid of getting caught when he goes and shoplifts or is, does he have strategies to avoid being caught? Does, has he ever been? Does he, has he had a lot of interactions with the criminal justice system? Is, is his criminal part of this, the part that he's stealing to support his habit, is he getting caught up in the criminal justice system at all? So he has certainly been through the criminal justice system and he spoke about part of the reason why he feels confident that he can pull off these mini heists is that he has gone through the entire system and knows what the consequences are. So if he steals under a certain amount from these stores, even if he gets caught, he can often give it back to the store immediately and they won't press charges. Or even if they call the police and he goes through the system, he's not looking at a long time a long time in prison or jail. It's often a short-term stay in a facility or a desk appearance ticket, something that would not hinder him too much in his life. And, you know, having witnessed a few of them, it was pretty clear that the stores did not really want to pursue him. You know, there. I think that's part of it is that he's understood at this point that the worst they're going to do to him is maybe yell at him, maybe detain him for a bit, but the stores are not really inclined to tackle him to the ground and forcefully restrain him. My guess is for legal reasons. And then, you know, at one of the stores, he was followed to the door, to the exit, onto the street. And the employees very clearly did not step onto the sidewalk. And they were looking around for a police officer. And later, David mentioned that to me, that had there been a cop out there, there might have been a problem. But I think the employees, really, their jurisdiction ends at the entrance to the store. And one of them even said, you know, defeatedly, it's not worth it. And, but there, you do describe in kind of colorful detail that at one point he goes into a store where there's literally a police officer out front just chatting with an employee. And he didn't seem deterred by that. No, and I was certainly deterred. You know, when, when I'm following him around, I, I was kind of thinking, oh, oh, this might, you know, become something much worse. And maybe he's just going to go in and just leave. But he was pretty confident that despite there being a uniformed officer at one of the entrances, he could still pull it off. And once we got into the store, you know, he was asking employees for directions, you know, within the store and asking them where certain items were. And, you know, they were very aware of his presence, but he still managed to take the items and then go out through a different exit where the police officer wasn't there. So, so far, just to kind of summarize a little bit, he is supporting his drug habit by committing these crimes, but with a fair amount of sophistication. He knows the limits on what he can take. He knows the limits on what employees can do to stop him. He has a fairly good understanding of the ramifications if he gets caught. 
yet the need to feed his addiction has kind of given him this path to try to figure it out. One of the things that you don't address at depth in the story, you paint this rather heart-wrenching experience of watching him shoot up and watching him go into that almost catatonic state that we have seen. It's just the citizens. We see people on the street and we kind of identify like, is that person living or dead? And you describe not knowing yourself, whether this person that you have made your subject in some degree befriended is slumped over, the EMTs get called. And I'm thinking throughout this part of the story, which by the way, I just want to reiterate, it's just riveting. You don't mention a lot about David's concern about the rise of fentanyl as an ingredient in these drugs. Has he expressed any sense of like, wow, I could at any point have a bad batch here that has a little fentanyl in it and not recover from from one of these shooting up experiences? I asked David about the possibility of fentanyl being in one of his bags, and he did not seem very concerned about it. And it was interesting seeing he shot up twice in front of me during the course of the day. And one of them, he passed out to the point where I was worried that he might not survive. And the other time, it was almost like nothing had happened. And so it really spoke to how different the batches can be, you know, wildly different reactions. And I think from his standpoint, he feels that he can take it. You know, even if there is something cut with, you know, in the heroin that he, his body can handle it. And he did not seem particularly afraid. You know, at one point, the EMTs who kind of shook him awake, one of them asked him or told him, you know, you might fall asleep and never wake up. And David seemed, you know, resigned to that, just said, uh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And I think, you know, having spoken to some other heroin addicts over the years, I think it's sort of viewed as this idea of like survival, you know, that you're either a survivor or you're not, you know, and the people that can't take it, they either die or they quit, you know, and the people who continue doing it are, you know, they can persevere. Like, I I don't really want to make it seem like a positive thing, but there is a sense that they feel strong enough to take it. And to be honest, I I don't think they really even see how bad it looks, you know, And, and when you're deep in addiction, you, that is your day-to-day life. So if you pass out on 36th street, you know, and lose all your stuff, the first time, maybe it's upsetting, but the 10th time it becomes just part of your day. So before we we move off the the CMT experience, they arrive at the scene, they revive him. They talk to him a little bit. Did they try to remove him from the street or did they just basically make sure he was okay and then get on to the next run that they had to do? The EMTs were remarkably gentle with David. And I think you could tell that they first wanted to check on his well-being, you know. And of course, David was a bit resistant, as anyone, you know, doing illegal things is with any form of authority. So they first wanted to make sure that he understood they were not trying to take him to a hospital or to jail or to the police. They're just to see how he was doing and to make sure that he wasn't in the process of overdosing. So they were very clear from the beginning in dealing with them. They repeated over and over again, we're just here to help you. Like, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to come with us. You don't have to go anywhere. And, you know, I I think they were trying to make sure that he wasn't gonna immediately die, but they were also trying to remind him that there are other options. There are other places he could go and there are, you know, possible solutions for his condition. 
But at the end, you could tell, I could tell that they were a bit frustrated, you know, that he was not going to cooperate. He was not going to really listen to them and that they would have to just leave him like many others and move on to the next one. Yeah. I mean, I think that speaks to the, the tension in the system that EMTs are ultimately healthcare workers. They're trying to provide healthcare, but from the perspective of the addict, they're under, they're probably under a lot of suspicion when they deal with anyone wearing a uniform or anyone that approaches them on the street. And let me ask one final thing. And then I want to wrap up with some, some as best we can come to kind of conclusions on this. Where does he sleep at night? My understanding is that David sleeps at a safe haven, which is a transitional housing that allows high functioning addicts and individuals suffering from mental illness. You know, it allows them to go to a place once every three days. It's a little bit more relaxed than a traditional homeless shelter, which forces you to come in every every day in order to hold your bed. And it wasn't clear to me, actually, that whether it was his room or it belonged to his girlfriend who is also an addict but he seems like he stays there most of the time so that's and 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 this is to some degree a a subsidized housing arrangement a city program or a nonprofit that works for the city something like that correct my understanding is that it is run by the city there are three or four locations i believe there are two in the bronx and one in brooklyn and possibly one in manhattan yeah so if i mean you know, you're observing this thing as a journalist. I'm coming at it to some degree to comment on it, but also with some experience in government. But as you described it, it seems that this city, the taxpayer citizens kind of came into play here at a couple of points in this story. You know, one is he used to work for the city. He was an employee. He was a uniformed employee, one that we honor, one that we try to figure out how to take care of. They offered him opportunities, repeated opportunities. It sounds like that extend to this day to try to get help for his addiction. Then he goes off to support his addiction by committing crimes and you know, police officers sometimes are involved, court officers, court facilities, penalties come into play if you're caught doing certain things at, at you know, certain values of what you're stealing. Then EMTs who work for the city have to come and respond when he is perhaps overdosing or at least in, in distress on the street. That's where many people see them. And then every so often he will seek out a bed that is a nonprofit provides funded by city and state tax dollars. And if you look at those four different entry points, people can point to any one of them and say, oh, that's where we need to focus our attention. But I think what your story reveals is that an important thing to, to acknowledge in this is that David Gonzalez is not actively in recovery. He's not trying to get clean. He's trying to live as an addict in his life. And once someone makes a decision like that, then a lot of the other efforts that people might make to kind of solve, quote unquote, this problem are really going to be difficult if he is more or less a willing participant in this lifestyle. I think first, yeah, I mean, addiction is very complicated and very illogical. And I think in a rational, I think it's, it's very difficult to talk about addiction in a kind of binary way, like you're either on drugs, you're off drugs, or in even like a linear way. I think, you know, having spoken to a lot of addicts, having known a lot of addicts, you can be doing well for a year, two years, three years, sometimes 30 years, and then all of a sudden something changes. And, you know, and that something can be 
extremely minor. It can be also success. It doesn't have to be failure that can push someone back into addiction. So it's very, it's very hard to comprehend, you know, why someone chooses to continue using or to go back to using or to get clean even, you know, and I think to non-addicts, it seems like you have two choices, right? You can either use the carrot or the stick. You can reward someone for, for good behavior or you can punish them for bad behavior, but it doesn't really work with addiction. In my opinion, I think I've seen people been exposed to some of the harshest penalties imaginable and they can't stop. And, and then one day they're crossing the street and they just have a thought saying you have to stop. And then it becomes possible. So it's very difficult for me to think of a solution personally that I think would be most successful. I think, like you said, there are many entry points and I think that's important because the best thing for addicts is to constantly be offering them a way out. So maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in a year, but one day there may be something that switches in their brain that says, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I'm tired. And they, in that instance, maybe they, have, they know where to go. You know, they can go to a therapist, they can go to their shelter, they can go to, you know, recovery. And so just providing that resource, even though it seems like they keep on saying no to it, is in a lot of ways the best option, I think. You've raised a lot there, and it, they, they have a saying in, in recovery programs that the only step that you have to do perfectly and do yourself is the first step where you say that I need this help. But I think what I was getting at was this idea, there's a tendency, particularly in people in, in both of our businesses, in journalism and in politics, to say, all right, here's the answer. And the answer is going to be largely dependent on the willingness of the addict to seek help and to accept help. The NYFD offered him help. He could not. You know, the very definition of addiction is trying repeatedly to stop doing something that has escalating ramifications. And they say in the, in the big book of AA talks about this idea that if you don't solve the problem, you wind up in an institution, prison or dead. And but to say, as some have, and maybe this is difficult to answer for you, because I, you know, you, you wrote this remarkable piece, which with remarkable compassion in a newspaper whose editorial page drew from this con- your story, this very blunt suggestion that, oh, it's these liberal policies. But to be honest, if you take a look, if you take step by step the experiences of David Gonzalez, any one of these points of entry could have been a solution, so to speak. You know, yes, you could have arrested him and he could have gone into prison and maybe he would have had an epiphany or gotten recovery there. Or he could have, when the EMT said, can we offer you some help? He could have accepted that. All of these things are ways that we might deal with this challenge. But from the perspective of the citizens of the city of New York, I agree with you. I think we kind of have to do everything we can that if someone does say, I want to get help, that we provide the help to them. I don't believe any one of them, better housing, better drug treatment services, tougher law enforcement. I don't think that any one of these things is going to be the Rosetta Stone to unpack this particular problem. Because as you described, David has, he's a high functioning addict who's figuring out ways to support his addiction. And it has ways that that have ramifications for everyone. And with that final point, let me just ask you as we wrap up, 
you got to meet his mom also during this, who, who is also another part of the story. I think will be very familiar to listeners. You know, she is doing the best she can, but describe a little bit what you found when you met her and, and, and what she told you about dealing with this. So during my day with David, he, he didn't have a cell phone, but he said that I could contact his mom and he gave me his mom's phone number. So I called her just to sort of check in to see uh, where David was. I was having a hard time finding him and I got to talking with her and I could tell even over the phone, she was very patient and very kind. And, you know, I started asking her if I, it would be okay if I interviewed her for the story, just to give a little bit of backstory to who he is and what he's been through. And she was a little hesitant at first and she didn't really want to be photographed, but at first, but she to to do an interview eventually and she really opened up and I think we really connected and you know it was fascinating to me to to hear about the idea of acceptance particularly for the family and friends of an addict so she noticed that he had been doing drugs at a a young age and at first she tried to fight it you know tried to um to punish him to not talk to him to you know be a force, you know, against his drug addiction. But I think where she ended up was this idea of acceptance and love, you know, and this idea that she wanted to just be there for him. She wanted to be able to, to see him all the time and talk to him. And, and she realized that telling him to stop or trying to punish him wasn't really working. And that's such a painful, but meaningful answer, you know, because I think we would like I think everyone would like it to be easier than that, you know, that you can just punish someone into submission, you know, and you can get them to, to be reformed just through, I don't know, cutting them off or something, you know, but the truth of the matter is, is that it doesn't really work. And in the end you have, if you want to continue loving them, you have to be there for them. And she just kept on showing up and, you know, she at one point, you know, he had OD'd and the nurse, took her aside and said, you know, keep showing up, keep showing up for him because a lot of parents, they get tired, they get annoyed and they stop coming and it just gets worse and worse. And she really took that to heart and she, you know, has showed up for David over and over and over again, you know, and the the resilience and stamina of that as a parent or just as a human being is really remarkable. Um, And in my opinion, it's the best thing to do. And she, it's not an easy life. It really isn't. She worries about him all the time, no matter how many times she's been through it doesn't necessarily get easier, but her story of acceptance was really uh, a meaningful, I think, approach to addiction and to the story. Well, I think that description will sound very familiar to family members of addicts. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time, Stephen, you know, Journalism, when done right, is a service profession, and I think you've done a great service with your story, and we really appreciate taking the time today on Keys to the City. Thank you very much. Handling legal matters is stressful, so let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25-plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. 
So before the break, we heard an amazing story from an amazing reporter, frankly. I think that Stephen Yang deserves a lot of credit. I have had my issues with the New York Post over the years, but they gave him the opportunity to dive deep into this story of David Gonzalez, and hopefully he'll keep following up and we'll learn more. And, you know, it's hard for us to listen to this and to hear that these stories exist, but I tell you, they're very familiar stories to those of us who have lived in a family that dealt with addiction, or we have seen it in our community. And it's important to keep in mind the fundamental humanity that is at play here. These are not just issues to be solved by government. These are just not issues to be solved even by family members. These are human beings who are struggling. And when it comes to addiction, that's a very powerful force that has torn many lives asunder. And us seeing it only as a matter of Law enforcement is a matter of street cleanliness, I think, are missing the fundamentals here. And on Keys to the City, we try to look at solutions to problems. And this one requires a whole battery of things, from providing resources to drug-addictive programs to encouraging people to get into recovery. But ultimately, there is very little that we can do as citizens and taxpayers and government agencies if the person is in that thrall. It's a major problem, and it's a heavy problem. And thank you for letting us into your home to talk a little bit about it on Keys to the City, as I said at the beginning. And if you'd like to be part of the show, either by offering an idea for other episodes of Keys to the City, or suggestions, or even feedback on episodes we've had, we have an email address set up for this. It's keys to the city at wabcradio.com. Or you can always put a comment and feedback on wherever you get this podcast. I would love it if you would subscribe. That's the way other people get an opportunity to hear about it. And I really appreciate you being part of it here on Keys to the City from the Red Apple Podcast Network.